Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Quintessential Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Quinn Kestick. On this episode, we'll be joined by Christian Sweezy, but I want to start off by bringing in Paul Carcaterra. Carc- major news today. Anish Shroff named the play-by-play voice of the Carolina Panthers NFL squad. Uh, just, just unbelievable to see Anish's rise and so happy for him. It's amazing. I'd have to think that we uh, had a little something to do elevating his profile. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I saw all the stuff on social media. It was classic. He's like, you know, he's in a photo shoot and he's throwing the ball up and catching. I didn't even know he could catch a football. He he's, can't, so, he can't. he's so uncoordinated. They must not have checked out his driving record. Driving record and just like his, his overall coordination. He is a fantastic broadcaster. A plus. I mean, his storytelling ability, big moments, big calls. They, they found an ace in that regard. But, like, please keep him away from anything physical. Well, I'm so glad for him. I hope it doesn't impact uh, his availability to, to work with us. I also want to thank you. That reverse sear recipe you gave me during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. It's life-changing. Life-changing. It life-changing. It's bulletproof. Like, the, the reverse sear for people who are listening you get the temperature, the internal temperature of the steak in the oven to your pleasing. If you like medium rare, 125. Once you get it to that level, then you just get a cast iron skillet, piping hot, half a stick of butter, flash sear it on both sides for like a minute and a half with a little bit of garlic, salt, and pepper. You're done. You know what? I add some rosemary from my garden. Oh, rosemary's. My brother Brian's big on the rosemary too. That's, that's a nice little garnish. Can't go wrong. You know, people watch our games and they think that we were just like teleported onto the set and, and to call lacrosse games. So like, I think what they, they don't understand is the path that, that yeah. we both took to get to this point. Like, and your origins as a teacher, like you, after QS, you went into the classroom, correct? Yeah, I was in the classroom for 10 years. teaching 10 elementary years in the school. classroom. You know, and I think about guys like John Donowski and Bill Tierney. Tony Seaman was my ninth grade social studies teacher. Like they're... they're ability to communicate and to present material because of their their background as a teacher and and i hear that in your presentation your storytelling and then your 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 analyst work like i hear that the ability to pop to get the class's attention so to speak it's a good point you know my mom and dad were both school teachers um i think your parents were teachers as well weren't they yeah 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 so i grew up in a household of of teachers and I, i saw it in in my home every day too, in terms of like the, the way that my dad would kind of lay out things and, and the way that he would kind of just punch certain things that needed to be punched um, and, and just outline things for us. And I, I just watched him in his craft too. He was super, super organized. My mom was a school teacher. She was an organizational mess. My dad kept her on track, but she had really good people skills. So I, I was blessed to have like my dad was a little bit of a bookworm, um, you know, always loved school and, and just was, was reading as a kid at, at crazy, crazy levels. He went to Cardinal Hayes in, in New York City, graduated six out of 600, didn't play sports really at all, um, but was a pretty good athlete, played some street ball in, in basketball uh, in New York City. My mom was, was more of like a people person, and I think her greatest gift was like having a kid believe in themselves to, to do well in school. So I saw a little bit of both uh, in regards to that. But I think the teaching element is is really critical because you only have a certain amount of time as a teacher to get your point across to the students and really have them leave that lesson with what's super, super important. So I, I see some parallels with television for sure. 
in regards to like when we're watching film. I mean, you and I trade hundreds of texts a week when we're watching film or we have a certain type of interpretation of a player or a scheme or a coaching style. Um, you want to walk away with like what's most important all the time. And I think there's some, some teaching attributes in that. Yeah. yeah. And I think what was the challenge is that we're constantly weighing that in our mind. I could tell a story, but now's not the time. Yes. I could break down that play, but to do it correctly, I need more replays. Like it, we're always weighing uh, risk and reward, so to speak, like how to maximize the time. Uh, and, and, and you end up leaving a lot unsaid sometimes. And yeah. but that's just, that's just the benefit of the show because no one wants to listen to, you know, just run on chatter, 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 chatter. Exactly. But I also think if you live the sport, like you and I live the sport, like we're committed to it. This is our life. This is our passion. This is our profession. If you just totally immerse yourself in the game without like an end result of, of taking information to the masses, you will be amazed at how many times the perfect moment comes when you don't expect it to. And you'll bring in information for being totally immersed in the game, for, for those crazy nights we're watching film or we're exchanging text messages. Like there are moments in that that you can't really pinpoint, but all of that, when you live the game, those organic moments to tell something always really present themselves when you're least expecting it. Like if you go into a game saying like, I'm getting this in, you might force it in. But if you live the game, there's going to be so many opportunities authentically to just find that moment when you least expected it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Luck, luck favors the prepared. Yes. Uh, last night we're texting back and forth. I dropped my daughter off to gymnastics and I got four hours to kill. So, you know, I went through highlights of these games and uh, I want to get your opinion. You, you've watched some of them as well. Penn Duke, Georgetown, Notre Dame, Maryland, Princeton. I watched uh, Lehigh and some Cornell. And then High Point and Navy from, from last week. Uh, you know, and, and I'm doing it and I'm saying, what am I doing? I'm not going to see High Point or Navy this year. And then I'm like, you know what? I chose this path. This is what I want to do. This is great. I get to watch lacrosse. Yeah. Well, also, if, if High Point comes up, that's a perfect example. Like, you will have an opportunity to tell the fan, even if it's not during a game, if we start talking about the SOCON, you'll be able to tell the fans something about High Point um, that is that is noteworthy and that's less than obvious. Everyone knows about Asher Nolting, right? But like, do, do they know about the big midfielder, 26, Ipolito, right? Like that yeah. guy has two hands. Like he's a potential pro guy. Like he's a big, strong guy. He can go right, he can go left. No, I, I think it's critical. Like I'm, I'm doing some of these PLL draft boards that I do all the time um, over, over the years. And I'm finding more and more now I have players from, from smaller conferences in the conversation. Like I told you about this goalie from Manhattan, man. I'm telling you, watch the tape on this guy, Brendan Krebs from Manhattan. He is an awesome, awesome goalie. And you talk to some opposing coaches like, they look at him as a pro goalie. Like, I think he potentially could be like a Tim Troutner. Uh, the, the kid, Mark O'Rourke. I mean, if he's honed some of his, you know, some decision-making and, and, and not going to the cage and being that alpha male all the time and finding his spots, like, he could definitely be a pro. So I think, like, the, the next level outside of those blue bloods, there's so many good lacrosse players. There's so many stories to be told. 
that I think we need to tell them. So you're breaking down all you know those games. Like you're going to talk about Penn. Like no one's going to be more prepared to talk about Penn than than you because of watching those games. And and you called Penn, man. When you when you were watching the Georgetown Penn game, you said Penn is a heavyweight. And then I watched back some of the some of the game as well. And I remember going back and forth with you. Like everyone talks about Sam Hanley. Like he, he's almost like a decoy right now. Like you're putting so much attention on him. Like Penn should be welcoming that kind of game plan against, against the Quakers because so many guys right now can make plays. Like if you look at their short stick D minis, like they have dudes in the middle of the field. They have guys who make plays who are strong athletes. They have other goal scorers. Um, that's a really, really dangerous team. And, and you called it because what I love about you is you don't just look at a score you look at like the hows and whys. And when you're comparing a team, like if Penn and Georgetown play a two goal game, but Penn gets housed on faceoffs and Georgetown's goalie makes a ton of saves. Like that is something to think about, right? Like that Absolutely. tells you that, that Penn actually really, honestly, if you look at like the entire picture, they might be better than Georgetown, right? Like Georgetown has an unbelievable faceoff guy. And they have a great goalie. Now, Georgetown's a loaded team. It deserves to be in the top four. But you can't tell me, like, if they played Penn ten times, they're, they're beating them eight times. I don't, I don't see that happening. Do you? No, and especially now if there's a rematch in May, considering that Georgetown scrimmaged Maryland, they had, you know, advanced games against, you know, Johns Hopkins and other quality teams. So they're a little ahead in terms of their preparation. You watch Penn, Dylan Gergar, like right-handed wing shooting, whether yes. it's feet set or off the dodge, my gosh, gorgeous. And then for Duke, it's the best I've seen Nakai Montgomery look in his career. Wing dodges, Clark, from like yeah. goal line extended underneath. on the right wing. Yep. Showcasing that speed. He's in great shape right now from playing football. He was repeatedly getting underneath. And when he, when he wasn't, he was banging the ball to X, and they got some good stuff from the left side and, and, and from the inside. So that's the best set pattern I've seen from Duke all season. Yeah, and I think with Montgomery, what people don't talk about is how much he's used in the clearing game, and he goes back on defense. Like, Nakai Montgomery is making a very strong case to be one of the top players picked in the, in the PLL draft because of his versatility and because he, he has the vision, too. I mean, he, you know, he had 20 assists a season ago. Like, he's really taken all aspects of the game over the years – He's added another little element to his game to make him complete. Like when he was a freshman, he was a really, really good dodger, right? He can create his own offense. And then as his career developed, he started the passing game. Now you're seeing the variety of dodges, the underneath. He's playing both sides of the field. Like he is a, a big time talent. But I think Penn is Penn is a heavyweight. Penn is, is a heavyweight. You, you mentioned Gergar too. Like, look, he's getting the number two matchup, right? Everyone's worried about about Sam Hanley. How many teams have two really good cover guys? Yeah. Georgetown Notre Dame was an interesting game to watch. Again, I watched clips. So it was only 20 minutes long. You don't get a feel for the face-off disparity. You don't get a feel for the quality of the Owen McElroy saves. What do you make? 24 of them. Yeah. What you do, what you do see is Georgetown jumped out to a big lead early, like 11 to two or something, 11 to three, eight, you know, it was eight to one or two. The shooting, my gosh, guys were just nailing corners. And that seems to be a common thread. We saw some in the Virginia game as well. I don't think the set feet shooting has ever been better. That's a great point. I mean, we saw Schellenberger last weekend, uh, but Georgetown has those guys. Like Declan McDermott can, 
can really, really shoot the ball. Graham Bundy can really, really shoot the ball. Like they have, they have dudes that can, can stretch a stretch a defense. The key to all of this too, is like, if you have an attackman that can make a skip pass, Carolina has that in Chris Gray. Uh, Virginia has that in Connor Schellenberger. If you have an offense where there is a, an attackman or a midfielder who does a great job with, with identifying opportunities for a skip pass. I mean, you saw Carolina a year ago. Like how many times did those middies have step down shots with Chris? Oh, step down Tons. city. So if you, you have the attack, like the thing that Syracuse doesn't have is they don't have a feeder behind the cage or a guy who can make that pass. So you're not going to see those kind of step downs that you see from the Georgetowns or the Carolinas or the Virginias of the world. Like the skip pass to me goes hand in hand with the step downs. Like if you don't have a guy who can make that pass and Syracuse had a guy with, with, with Owen Hiltz before he got injured, he was a really good skip passer, but, but they don't have that guy right now. So I, I think when you want step down city and these kids can rip it, man, like we can say these kids are playing way too much lacrosse these days, this, that, and the other thing. But the elite players, you can tell who they are in terms of the amount of time they've spent on their own. We know about Connor Schellenberger and all the time he's spent with his dad, Shelly. Just his dad, Shelly, never played the sport of lacrosse. He just threw him balls relentlessly every single day. But you see it in his shooting, righty and left. So, like, we talk about, like, kids are playing way too many games. Um, but the real elite ones are finding time to hone their craft and, you know, in a basketball term, practice their jumper. Yeah, and the, the whiz kid was Nowskis from Maryland. His oh, shot, his, his shot in the dome. Then again last week against Princeton. I mean, it's 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 scary stuff, really. I, I do not envy these goalies. You also mentioned passing. The Terps passing continues to be just gorgeous. Uh, their patterns. You see some repeating patterns. But a guy like Kyle Long, I was so impressed with his ability, Paul, to drive down that right alley, almost a goal line extended. Look over his left shoulder and feed a strike to the backside. Bob Benson has Maryland trained so well to just look opposite. And, and they, they put daggers across formations, which leaves defenses, you know, rotating, then re-rotating. It's, it's a cluster trying to guard Maryland right now. Oh, no, no, no doubt. And, and you mentioned Bobby Benson. Like, you look at some of those Hopkins teams that were always in the, you know, 50% range on extra man. And, you know, I honestly think those last few years, how, how much talent did they really have on those teams? Like that, this is a guy who really can coach offense in, t- in terms of understanding schemes and getting all players involved in spacing that ball moves at hyperspeed. It's, it's, it's hot potato city. Bobby Benson's offensive mind is, is elite. It, re- it really is. Like when you, when you watch his teams operate um, and the way that they pass the ball and, and, and the way that they space too. And, and, and Kyle Long making that pass too. Like Kyle Long was an attackman in high school, operated behind the cage. I remember watching him as a freshman uh, against Notre Dame in South Bend. Like he was making a lot of those kind of plays that like a seasoned offensive player would make. And, you know, you have him, you have Jonathan Donville, who's honestly, he's, you could argue he's a first team all American type talent. And, you know, Wisnaskis and, and his IQ and his lefty shooting ability and Keegan Kong and Oliver and Danny Maltz, like all those guys like have a different skill set. You put them all together. It's like, I, I, I don't know. To me, as good as Virginia is and as much as we are impressed, I, I'd be hard pressed to, to think that, that Maryland isn't 
overall the best team in the country right now. Maryland right now could shell the Virginia defense. Now, Virginia's scheme against Maryland will be, we're not going to slide. You got, you got to yeah. beat us one-on-one because, because if Virginia got in the slide business against Maryland, it would, it would get ugly. So the other thing Maryland's doing really well, restarts, change of possessions, or any kind of turnover and breakouts, man, their, their transition patterns are unbelievable. From, you know, like Maycar comes up with that ground ball. Next thing you know, there's Roman Puglisi sneaking in from the substitution box. They turn every moment of 50-50 gray, like into an advantage. And then they're just, their spacing is perfect. Their passing is on. Uh, their fa- Luke Weirman had two goals in transition, their FOGO. Uh, it, it's, it's really impressive it's really mature lacrosse. Like the guys are just making the right plays and they're always in the right spots. Yeah. I think Roman Puglisi is for, for my money. I think he's the best short stick D midi in the country. And, and the reason being is because he, he does a little bit of everything Like you could argue like, all right, maybe Geddes from Georgetown might play a little bit better defense than him or, or Connor Marr might, might do a thing or two better than, but when you look at Roman and his ability to play, defense but also in the transition game and I've seen him absolutely hammer shots from the outside as well he gives them that little bit of a of, of a different style that that I don't really see any other team he's like he's comfortable with the ball on his stick he just cradles the ball differently like he shoots differently than a lot of those short stick team is for me if, if I was to pick one and I think he's also the most pro rate ready one too and, and the reason I'll, I'll say that is like Danny Logan from from Denver had a lot of offensive experience. Was really comfortable with the stick. He played amazing last year in the PLL. I think, like professionally speaking, Roman Puglisi really kind of tracks at, at the next level better for me than than any other shorty in the country. He's a pro. PremierLacrosseLeague.com, PLLTickets.com. Uh, Princeton. I, I was impressed with their midfield quickness and speed. Sam English played really well. I think Princeton's going to score a lot of goals in the Ivy league. And quite honestly, after watching them, their game, I got them a little higher than Yale. I, I do want to talk about the Hopkins game that we watched on Sunday, ESPN plus, I had it on airplay over my phone, watching it on TV. ESPN plus is the greatest invention in the history of man. Okay. Look, I had someone hit me on a DM and complaining about all the streaming. I said, look, man, for six ninety nine a month, like Anish tweeted out, last weekend how many games there was like there were, 50, games. there were 57 games that weekend 57 games okay there's four we're, there's four this we're looking games. at a dollar 75 a weekend that's like <laughs> 10 it's like no it's five cents a game pretty much like it, it, it it's it's awesome so i'm watching the carolina hopkins game right i don't know like i'm i'm part analyst part there's an alum in me obviously too but i i have called three north carolina games already this season like so yeah. i know carolina a lot a lot better than I should. And, and I was watching Hopkins and I'm saying, okay, you go into the game. What do you got to do? If you're going to beat John, if you're going to beat Carolina on the road, if you're Johns Hopkins, number one, stop Chris Gray. Well, yeah. Gray finished seven and two yep. strike one. Number two, what do you got to do? You got to clear the ball. Yeah. Their clearing stats were good, but they had far too many turnovers in, in the high box area, you know, Costly ones that turn into goals. Yeah. So the clearing was average at best three face-offs. Tucci, Tyre, they're really good, and you better have solutions. Uh, they came in with a long ball, but by then the game was, was, was far from over, so I, I didn't love their face-off solutions. But maybe the most important, and number four, would be how are you going to attack Carolina's defense? Okay, Carolina's rope unit, as you mentioned, Connor Mark, elite. 
Matt Wright, number 20, their long pole, as fast as it gets. Yes. Then they got some subs, Dominic Pryor. They got Alex Bresci, uh, above average, above par players for the position. Yet down low, you got all sorts of inexperience. Ohio State taped them up for 20 goals. Oh, why don't you take that game plan and try to mimic it? Yet Hopkins is dancing at the top of the box. Like, so, so they failed there. They failed to capitalize on the vulnerability of North Carolina's close defense. And so it's at strike four in my book in terms of game planning. Now, there's a difference, and we see it all the time. Are you outmanned or are you outplanned? I look at my career at Hopkins. There's one game I can point to where we were outplanned. There's about a dozen that I can say we, we, we had a better plan than the other team. But every other loss was because we were outmanned. And that's usually what it comes down to. But I didn't think the Blue Jays were able to put their best foot forward because I thought their plan was lousy. How many times in that game did you see a midfielder like start a dodge, bang it to X with an aggressive push to goal line extended to look inside or something, right? Like, did, did that really ever exist? You watched the Ohio State game. Oh, and Jack God. Myers was amazing in that game. And Jack Myers has been amazing all season. That dude's got like 30 points in four games, right? Because they were willing to initially maybe get those midfielders defensively for North Carolina engaged, right? Not as the primary Dodgers, just get them engaged and then beat them off ball. How many assisted goals did Ohio State have in that game? Jack Myers had seven, and it was like on the same play. It was a, it was a, a wing dodge against the pole sometimes, a, a, a defenseman. Carolina was eager to slide. They kicked it to Myers at X, and he hit the Isn't inside. That exactly he hit what the I'm telling you? He, he hit the skip. That's so, exactly what I'm telling you. Like, don't overthink things. Like, no. Ohio, but what, Ohio what, what, what I saw Hopkins try to do was, like, their Dodgers were actually trying to score. Like, their initial Dodger was trying to score. Yeah. That's not the plan. Like, turn, like you said, turn on the Ohio State tape. Jack Myers was masterful in that game in terms of, like, getting the ball off of initial dodge and then, and then taking advantage of a defense – that is not dialed in. Like they have young guys down there. They have inexperienced guys. When you get a head to spin on a player who's not used to being in a, in a battle zone, like good things happen, right? If you yeah. take an inexperienced player and you say to that ex inexperienced player, I'm going to beat you one-on-one, -on -one, you just simplified the defensive plan. You made it easy. Like those guys know how to cover at North Carolina. Even some of their inexperienced D guys, like, you want to make them think and you want them to deal with two and three passes and then you'll, you'll strike on them. I mean, we know from college football, you watch the NFL, it's all about matchups and create, you know, attacking weaknesses. I just didn't see that Hopkins turns around. They play at Virginia. I believe that this Saturday and uh, the following week, uh, Hughes comes to Homewood field. I'll be calling that game. It's a Sunday game at four o'clock. The return of Dave Petromalo to Homewood field should be electric. I know a lot of alums who are coming back. Uh, and many of them, they said, will be supporting Petro. We got to see Virginia in practice last week on Friday. We're down on the field. Uh, it was it was uh, it was an impressive bunch, man. Uh, I got to tell you, Paul, the speed from guys like Danny Parker and Evan Zinn, uh, the the length of a Cole Kastner and, and a Cade Sawstead, a Cole uh, Sawstead on defense, uh, the different parts on O, whether it's Peyton Cormier's size, Griffin Schutz you know, your ACC linebacker. Oh. And then you got, and then you got the twinkle toes, a little Xander Dixon doing his dance and Connor, <laughs> and Connor, Connor Schellenberger with, 
you know, the wizardry of the stick. Uh, and you didn't even mention Matt Moore, right? Like, here's what no, Matt, Matt didn't mention Petey LaSalle, didn't mention yeah. Matt Moore, didn't mention uh, Jack Simmons, who played well, or, or Will Corey, who's coming on. Saladay had a strong game. Noah Chismar made some plays in transition. There's a lot there. I don't even think they're close to midseason form. They did give up a, a bunch of shots to, to, to the Orange, but uh, man, just to see them in person, in practice, I, I, I was pretty impressed. Here, here's the scary thing about Virginia, too. Um, you, have, you have Connor uh, is, is hurt at the midfield, right? He's, he's, he's banged up. Yeah. And then, and then you have, uh, you, you have uh, Garno, who isn't really playing great right now. So if those two get going – and, and, and the reason I say if those two get going is because they add a different element. Like if Garno's playing well, he's shooting from the outside and he's giving them an extra element. He's not shooting well right now and he hasn't been a major fixture. So like if you add Garno and then Connor back into the, to the mix at midfield when he's, he's off of injury, like this is a really, really, really scary bunch because those are proven guys. Like those are guys who made plays down the stretch for them to win a national title a season ago. Um, you have all of these the, these unbelievable players and, and, and don't let's not sugarcoat the fact too. Like they have two elite quarterbacks, like no one in the country has anything close to that. If you ask me, like who has a combination of Matt Moore and Connor Schellenberg, like no one has that. You know, and, and the matchup issues, like they're not passing the ball great on offense. It's matchup created reminds me of the NBA a little bit. And then one pass goals, you know, a pass to the wing and a shot or a pass to Cormier. When they start getting some tic-tac-toe stuff going, it's, it's, it's going to be ugly. And I think that's when Garno's step-down game, uh, you know, can have more of an impact. Other games this weekend that I want to finish up with, uh, Maryland back at Notre Dame. Weren't they just there like last year in the playoffs? That's going to be an interesting game too. And I think you're going to, you're going to learn a lot about the Irish. I was super bullish on, on Notre Dame. Like I had them in my preseason top four and, you know, they got blitzed against Georgetown. That score was not as close as the game. I mean, it was like 11 to three at one time, right? Didn't we, didn't we get a, an update yeah, during yeah. our game? Again, if you watch the game, Notre Dame made some defensive mistakes. Georgetown's shooting was amazing. They won every face off and Owen McElroy had 24 saves. So, I liked, I liked what I saw from Notre Dame's offense. I think the Kavanaugh brothers are unbelievably fun to watch. They play yeah, with this. Yes. They play you with see this that behind grit. the back by the behind that, the back, the behind the back goal. There. That was like a Tom Marichek behind the back, like yeah. a range behind the back. Dobson had one on the run left-handed. Mo Meyer played a great game. Uh, I didn't see your guy, uh, Wheaton Jackaboys, very much. I'm not sure if he, he played. He didn't get many calls, but uh, Meyer, Meyer played a strong game. Uh, you know, it's a, that's a skillful and, and powerful offense. They got some defensive uh, yeah. things to clean up. I think, um, I think they're going to play Notre Dame. Notre, I think Notre Dame is going to play Maryland really, really tough. I, I think this could be a, a really close game down to the wire at the end of the game. I, I think, I think they match up pretty well. I think defensively, they've always prided themselves on, on being able to deal with ball movement. Like you don't see too many Notre Dame teams get, get, absolutely lit up uh, with you know with 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 the type of ball movement that that Maryland throws at you is, is scary but I think Notre Dame is the type of team to to deal with it almost like you know you look at the Maryland Virginia regular season matchup like right now if, if, if you were to play Maryland against Notre Dame or Virginia like I, I think Virginia 
would, would maybe struggle with that ball movement right now. I'm not saying at the end of the year. I think yeah. at the end of the year and it progresses, I think Virginia could definitely win another national title. But, like, right now, I think, I think Notre Dame could be a tougher matchup for Maryland than Virginia in March, in early March. I, I might sound crazy there. Maryland's schedule is legit because they, they travel to Notre Dame this week. They play Virginia on the 19th at Audi Field. Another game I think this weekend that's going to be revealing, Paul, Michigan – with their cupcake schedule, plays Delaware, a team that I, I really like the Delaware offense and that loss to Duke. They, they, those guys can score. So I'm expecting a high-scoring game and a big game for both teams. That Michigan-Delaware game, they got the same helmets, right? They, they, they both have that. They, they do, have that, yeah. Michigan's a little darker. But Michigan has the talent. You know, from, from everyone I talk to, they, they blitz Syracuse up in the dome in a scrimmage. Yeah, it was a scrimmage. But they, they they definitely have turned the corner in terms of talent and the type of players. Like, they've got some freshmen like Aiden Mulholland, who's a, a big-time recruit, could have gone anywhere. Uh, he's making plays. Josh Suwata is, 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 you know, as good as there is in the offensive realms of the Big Ten. I think he's a fantastic player. The one thing I worry about Michigan is – when, when they get those big moments later on in the season and maybe in the playoffs, I think the schedule could come back and, and, and bite them. You know, you talk about Georgetown being battle-tested. You look at Georgetown's early season scrimmages. You look at their early season games playing, you know, Maryland in a scrimmage, playing Penn, playing Notre Dame. Like, they're going to be battle-tested. Um, the Big Ten right now, I think Ohio State obviously has shown some, some flashes Penn State's a little bit unpredictable. We don't know. They beat Yale, but they zoned it against Yale, and their goalie made 7,000 saves to win the game. So, like, I don't know if you can count on Michigan's only battle-tested type of games being in the Big Ten. I think that schedule is going to come back and, and haunt them. And there is good lacrosse in the Big Ten. Make no mistake about it. Rutgers is legit. Like, they're, all the teams are – the six teams are very, very good. But, like, when you go out of conference and you go out of your 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 – comfortable element to play games like Maryland does like Georgetown does like Syracuse and all the ACC schools like that schedule for Michigan gives them very little room for error in terms of the selection committee too like you're gonna have to win a, a really big time game in the Big Ten against the Maryland maybe or, or beating Rutgers or, uh, or an Ohio State maybe twice when it comes to the Big Ten playoffs because their out-of-conference schedule is not going to favor them at all down the stretch in terms of competition, but also in terms of resume, because that schedule is soft. Young Michigan midfield and the Delaware Blue Hens, the Tweety Birds. Winner, winners in the top 20, loser probably will be knocked out. Other game, you mentioned Rutgers and Stony Brook. That's a, a little tricky game. Rutgers heading up to face unbeaten Stony Brook. Penn State off that win over Yale now plays Penn. Uh, the, the, that's the Big Ten action. Carolina, Denver, Georgetown, Princeton. That's an interesting, interesting game. I've got some Sunday action. Syracuse Hobart. Uh, tell me about the Syracuse Hobart rivalry, Clark. Is that a one-way rivalry, or, or is that really the Kraus Simmons Trophy? You know, I, I, I think the expectations, if you're a Syracuse alum, is always to, to keep that trophy home. I, you know, I was fortunate enough to to keep it in, you know, in, in the dome, but we were always tested. I remember my senior year, we won in overtime. I mean, we were a top four team in the country, but Hobart, the end of the season, we took us to overtime. Casey Powell scored the game winning goal. So like that game always has, it, it has a little bit of extra type of, of oomph to it because I think Hobart feels disrespected. You always get their best shot. And 
you know, Hobart beat Lehigh. Hobart has has legitimate players. Like that, that's going to be a very, very tough game for Syracuse. Um, you mentioned something also about Sunday games. I love watching as much lacrosse as possible. I wish the start times were staggered. I wish we had a 12 o'clock game or a slew of 12 o'clock games, a slew of two o'clock games, and then, you know, some fours and sixes or, or whatever it might be, because I looked at last week's schedule. There were so many good noon Saturday games. Like, I wish that we just staggered a little more like college football. What are we going to need to do that? Because, like, everyone wants to watch Syracuse against Virginia, but they're up against Georgetown, Notre Dame, and a slew of other great games, right? Like, what do you think it would take to stagger games? Well, TV is helping that to a certain degree. But when coaches are compensated by attendance and not – registrations at their camp or prospect days, you'll see a change because when, when for years, Johns Hopkins, Loyola, Towson and UMBC would all play on, on, on Saturday at two o'clock. Okay. And, and, and this was before the TV era. And so the fan had to make a decision. You know, if, if somebody realized, Hey, why doesn't Loyola play at noon? Hopkins, you play at three and Towson, you play a night game. You, you can serve the fan. Now with TV, like that first weekend of the year, we had it spread out. There was a Friday night game. I think it was uh, Johns Hopkins at Towson. There was three on Saturday. They were spread out. And then we had two on Sunday. Man, if it's spread out like college football, the fan benefits. We, oh. as, a TV, we as a TV organization benefit. Uh, and, and, and so I just, I just think it, it requires a little common sense and a little communication between entities, whether it's broadcast networks or, or, or schools. Yeah, I would, I would love to see it because I just feel like, you know, when you resort back to the highlights, you could watch some games back. But like you said, you're watching some of the highlights of, of Georgetown, Notre Dame, but you're missing some of the key critical elements of the game, right? Like Absolutely. the shot disparity and, and the goal-saving ability by, you know, McElroy. Like you don't, you don't get a full feel for the, for the game uh, if, if, if you go that route. But, like, I just, I just think there's so many more opportunities for the fans – especially with like the ESPN app, right? We're, we're putting all these games on the platform. Like if we spread out the start times, everyone wins. I, I 100% agree with you. Uh, tell me about relaxing with Pete Kark. Uh, who, who you got his upcoming guests that we're going to see in the month of March? Well, I had Lars Tiffany last week. Um, next week for the Syracuse Hopkins uh, week, I'm going to have Kyle Harrison. I want to I want to go heavy on Petro. Petro doesn't want to talk to anyone next week. Like he, he made that very very clear. Like I, I'm not even going to ask him. Like I could just tell. Like that's going to be very uncomfortable for him. Like you mentioned all those like alum coming back, even supporting him. Like I want to look, and I'm so glad we're doing that game in person. I want to look at his body language when he walks onto the field for warmups. I want to see when like at halftime he walks off and like so many people are calling his name. There's those little parts of, of, of being a coach that I think in person us watching that uh, is, is, is going to be really, really interesting. So um, Kyle Harrison will be the, the guest that week and we'll, we'll go heavy um, on, on the Petro angle and the Syracuse Hopkins uh, rivalry and you know he played through the the Mikey Powell era and, and then winning the first championship uh, in 2005 since your freshman year in 87 so I think there's some meat on the bone with with, with Kyle Harrison I'm going to go after the Kavanaugh brothers together um, we have Michigan on our air um, you know a, a couple times this year so I, I, I definitely want to uh, to get either Josh Suwata or one of the characters for, for, the, for the Wolverines but I think we're going to do something different too where 
Um, I actually might cross over and, and, and do something with the Syracuse women's um, program and, and Tari and Amari on sound on might do something with, with, with Gary gate and kind of just cross over that way and have Kayla uh, on as a guest. Um, but there's, there's a full slate of them. Um, it will be interesting. I thought Lars was, was, was great, man. Like, he, you know, he, he oh. talked about some, some stuff to me. I mean, just how he got his name and his dad's travels across the world and how he, you know, traveled on a motorcycle and found a, a Swedish architecture that he, he became friendly with. His name was Lars and grown up on the Buffalo farm and how the team's dealing with pressure. There's a lot of neat stuff, I think, with, with Lars. So I'm always just trying to find someone that adds a little bit more than, than X's and O's. We, we never talk X's and O's. It's just about finding more about the person. Appreciate you coming on the the, uh, the quintessential podcast. Anytime, man. You, you, are, you are the best. You are the best, Mark, we got to deal with a niche now with this this uh, small this ego he's going to bring to the table. After well, this, this huge, now he's huge... going to tell us he never has time for anything either, right? Like, Oof. yeah, this is going to be, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. But he he's uh, he's in a good spot, man. He can be the voice of the Panthers for the next forty years. The rapper poet. <laughs> All right, my friend, be well. Thanks, Thank you. Have a great week. Quintessential Podcast rolls on, and we are uh, enthused to bring on Christian Sweezy, uh, pound for pound, the best writer in the, in the sport of lacrosse, former writer with the Washington Post, now with Inside Lacrosse. But it's a two-pronged attack today. Christian has been reporting at, at some games this spring, but I wanted to bring him on first, Christian, to talk to you about the book you wrote, We Showed Baltimore. Uh, you, you sent me a copy of this book last spring. I gobbled it up maybe in, in three readings on some flights. It's a look at the 1970s lacrosse revolution and the rise of the Cornell program under Richie Moran. Uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was interesting. Uh, I want to ask you, why did you decide to write the book? First of all, Quint, thank you so much for having me and thank you for the very kind words. Uh, it took five years to write that book, but there were a couple of reasons, but the first was, you know, there isn't a whole lot serious sort of scholarly looks at the sport and it, the 70s. And Cornell, of course, had obviously been pretty good in the 70s and, and has not won a title since Eamon McEnany left in 1977. So Cornell Press had said, well, let's take a look back at, at what made those big red teams so good and the role Richie Moran played in really democratizing the sport, for lack of a better term. But I will give Cornell Press a lot of credit, too. My editor had played lacrosse growing up in New Jersey um, and had was almost going to play at Bucknell before health issue got in the way in the, in the mid 80s. And he sort of gave me a lot of leeway and a lot of latitude. So it wasn't just going to be, you know, a Cornell May Day parade. We used to be really good. It became, well, what about the sticks? They went from wooden sticks to plastic sticks. What about the first NCAA tournament? What about the rise of Long Island? I know you're a Long Island guy. You know, the rise of public high school lacrosse on Long Island when really Baltimore had been the sports epicenter or the two sport athletes who were looking for something to do other than spring football and played lacrosse. And so it was a lot of sort of things. Um, and I learned so much through the process, a lot of, you know, archives, a lot of interviews. I think we interviewed more than 90 people uh, for the book, some several times. And, uh, uh, you know, thank you for the kind words. I have to admit, I'm, I'm pleased with how it turned out. Yeah, no, I, I found the book on all of those topics to be extremely interesting, extremely fascinating. I learned a ton. I mean, you go back to pre-NCAA tournament, late 60s and early 70s, it was a game that Maryland, Hopkins, Virginia, Army, and Navy kind of had a stranglehold on. 
and and here comes this Cornell program. What what, what did you learn uh, in in your in your interviews with with Coach Moran? I learned how personally he took this crusade almost to you know, and you mentioned those five schools, they were called the big five for a reason, Quinn, that was literally what they were called, you know, going through the numbers in, in the 60s, the decade of 1960, 1969, um, they won every single, those five combined to win every single national title, they accounted for 79% of the first team All-Americans, those five programs, they just had a stranglehold on the sport and all of its honors, and Richie said, you know, in 1968, under Ned Harkness, Cornell had gone undefeated, um, Richie's team in 1970 went undefeated and finished fourth. They were undefeated against, you know, frankly, not a great schedule because none of the big five would play Cornell. And so here are the teams, you know, Cornell, Ned Harkness, Richie's predecessor, had been undefeated in 66, undefeated in 68, won nothing in either of those years. Richie went undefeated in 70, won nothing. And it was really his, as much as anyone else, he was the personality and he was the driving force to say there is good lacrosse outside the big five. There is good lacrosse outside Baltimore. Who else did you talk to that you found most compelling? I was amazed at how much the former players remembered. I mean, these are guys, you know, who played in the early to mid seventies, Bob Rule from Manhasset high school could remember, you know, so much. And Bob Rule actually played a very important role in the future of the sport. When it went from wooden sticks to plastic sticks, he came up with the mold for the goalie stick head, which is why they called it, um, Brian called it the BR goalie stick head because Bob Rule was BR. And so he, he based it off of a pizza spatula that he saw at restaurants on Long Island. So little things like that. Um, the Virginia guys were great too. Um, Doug Taring and Tom Duquette. Duquette had worked for STX as a sophomore at the University of Virginia when they were putting out their first plastic sticks and the plastic molds. And Duquette was the one who told me where they got the idea for the strings that would not get too soaked uh, in the rain, in rainy weather, in bad weather. And it was came from Venetian blinds. It was called Chord Number Three from Venetian blinds. And I, I don't mean to give away the whole book. There's other things in there, but just sort of how humble the origins were of, of all these changes that we still feel to this day. We showed Baltimore, uh, the Lax Revolution. You know, every generation hands off something to the next. And I look at these guys in the '70s, like when the NCAA tournament came about. I was reading it, and you said not everybody was on board. Uh, no. That is amazing to to think back. Uh, about and how they went from no tournament, a champion being voted to all of a sudden having a process in place. It, it, so much so, you know, Navy, speaking of the 60s, you know, Navy had won eight um, national titles, won or share, eight national titles in the 60s. It's still called the decade of dominance. I know your brother played there. He's, he's probably heard that phrase a few times. Um, and Navy was massively against this NCAA tournament. You know, Bill Bilderback, the coach, uh, who was probably the sort of Belichick model, you know, if we can sort of cross-reference the sports, he was sort of Bill Belichick of lacrosse in the 60s and 70s, was hugely against the tournament and, and spoke out against it. He was in the Baltimore Sun. You know, I'm not sure if, if we get in the tournament, I'm not sure we're going to take that bid. And they still, part of the reason was that the Army-Navy game to him and to a lot of people was sort of the pinnacle of the lacrosse season. And Army-Navy was always the first week in June as part of the commencement week, June week, um, whether it was at West Point or, or, or Annapolis. And when the NCAA tournament released its schedule for the first tournament in 71, that first Saturday in June was for the NCAA title game. And Bilderback said, we're not going to do it. And, and finally, Army prevailed upon him to accept the bid because they could see where the sport was going. And they thought, well, you know what? We think we're the best, two best teams. The NCAA is giving us a chance to prove it. Let's do it. And he could, you know, um, Al Pisano, the coach at Army, really appealed 
to Bilderbacks, I don't want to say vanity, but it did appeal to his competitive nature and said, we think we can win this. And so they moved the Army-Navy game back all of one day from June 5th, a Saturday to June 6th, a Sunday. And it's very, I won't get, you know, I won't spoil it, but it's very, people still wonder what would have happened if Army and Navy had reached that first title game in 71, having to play 400 miles away one day later, would they have played reserves? You know, would it have been a farce? The whole thing was was very, um, it almost seemed preordained by how it worked out. It amazed me the the impact and the strength of the North-South game and what that meant to the game in the 60s and 70s. And, And the other thing you bring up, and was really educational was, was the military history behind these awards that we hand out at the end of the year. And I would encourage people to Google Ray Enners, uh, McLaughlin, a fascinating story about that family in Catonsville, Maryland. Uh, you know, who, who those awards are named after just, just some absolute war heroes. And, and I don't think as a modern sport, we do those, those players and those former soldiers uh, do justice because uh, after reading your book, I, I've got so much respect for their stories. Yeah, thank you for that. And even the all-time, the, the guy who has the record for the most goals in the game in Army to this day, he said it in 1952 with 10 goals. I won't spoil it, but there was a story about him too that I found very interesting and what happened to the stick he had used in that game, ironically against Cornell in 1952 and what happened to the person he gave it to in 1962. Um, you know, and there's, there's names are still in the record books at Army, and yet more heroes and did not come to the best of end. There's some also uh, good cameos from, from some current uh, names that the fans will recognize who were maybe uh, uh, supporting roles back then who have who've risen up in the game. How, how can fans, Christian, how can fans uh, buy this book? Thank you, Quentin. It, it, it is available for pre-order on Amazon on Barnes and Noble, but um, also from Cornell University Press. And there is a link at the bottom of my stories uh, that appear in another website um, where you can go or just Google, we showed Baltimore, you know, Cornell Press or we showed Baltimore Amazon and it will um, pop up there. The book is released April 15th. Thank you for sending me the PDF. I, again, I gobbled it down, you know, so Thank to you. think that Cornell's open their season after a spring break bus trip down south and in, in mid-March. It's just amazing the way the game has changed and evolved. And certainly that generation of player, uh, they, they weren't a sh- uh, sh- short of fun. Uh, teams were much smaller. You know, they had roster size of 30 or 35 guys, and it, it seemed to be a, a band of brothers. Uh, just, just, a, just an amazing look. Uh, w- w- last thing about the book, Christian, what do you think the modern fan will enjoy most? When it's all said and done, I think the stories that you mentioned, um, and, and again, I was so lucky that these guys who played for Cornell and the other schools in the '70s, the Johns Hopkins guys, they were mem- they, their memories were so vivid, you know. And, and it isn't like they can go back and rewatch, you know, the '76 uh, Hopkins Maryland regular season game. It wasn't on TV. None of that stuff was on TV. And but just their memories, of course, verified by newspaper accounts and all those things. I mean, there were 1,200 footnotes in the book, either from interviews or newspaper stories or magazine stories. Um, or the video such as it was, which wasn't very much. So I do, th- you know, I think it's a comprehensive um, sort of fact-based, almost scholarly look at lacrosse in the 70s and, and why it was such a unique um, decade. We spin things to uh, last weekend, you were down in Charlottesville uh, with uh, our, our crew was there as well. Uh, Virginia dominating Syracuse, uh, great beginning of the game for the Cavaliers and then they really finished them off at the end. In the, in the middle, uh, Syracuse actually played quite well. What did you learn uh, in, in, in post-game, uh, Christian, uh, r- writing about the, uh, the Cavaliers and, and the Orange? The first thing I learned was how much respect Virginia has for Cole Kastner, a sophomore defender, six foot seven, 
you know, very good feet. I mean, he does so much for them. I was a little bit surprised, you know, driving down. I thought that uh, he would draw. I thought that um, Sawstead, the number one defender, would draw um, 23 for Syracuse. Yeah, Tucker Dordovic, yeah. exactly. Because everyone told me 16-23, 16-23, Curry Dordovic, Curry Dordovic. And to see Kastner on Dordovic and Dordovic, you know, um, didn't do very much. One for eight shooting, three turnovers. And Kastner had four cost turnovers. And he causes so much havoc. I was really impressed by him. And the other thing, the, the freshman goalie for Virginia, Noons, Matthew Noons, so quick. It, the first three possessions right out of the gate, Syracuse, Dordovic had a high-to-high Noons save. The second one was a um, high-to-high off stick he saved. The third one, I think, was Seabolt, low-to-low, and he saved it. You know, he was saving high, he was saving off stick, he was saving low right off the bat. And I think that and the fact that Virginia was winning face-off, Syracuse really uh, was spitting its heels in the first quarter. So as much as Virginia scored 20 goals, I actually was much more impressed with Virginia's defensive goalie. Yeah, Matt Nunes was outstanding. He's a, he's a young goalie, freshman out of the Woodlands, Texas, which is north of Houston. Watching him on tape this year and, and some of his high school stuff, his movement skills – you know, he moves uncommon for the position, like athleticism that that kind of jumps out at me. And I turn back to older goalies and you know, guys like Greg Catrano, just just uh, next level movement. He's got to clean up some, um, you know, some high school, some high school things that 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 all goalies have to have to clean up when that when they segue to college. But, man, I, I, he's got uh, immense potential. What was your biggest takeaway about Syracuse? Very top heavy. I like Curry a lot. I like Dordovic a lot. Uh, the rest, you know, some decent but not great. You know, Berkman's at X is a pretty good passer. 26 Quinn is a pretty good shooter. You know, I think that they can cause teams troubles that whether have the talent edge. When they don't have the talent edge, I think they're in trouble. The other thing that caught my eye was the Syracuse defense. I think their defense will be much better down the road. I, I, I find it funny that these teams are playing again in a scheduled regular season game in late April in the Carrier Dome. I'm going to be very curious how that plays out because I think Syracuse's defense will be much better. I certainly, the effort was there. The execution was not, I was amazed at how easily Virginia got what it wanted going on inverts or going on big little picks behind, you know, Schellenberger would do the pick and the short stick would follow him. And all of a sudden you have a short stick on arguably the best player in the sport. I didn't, you know, that I think stuff will be cleaned up. And I think that game in late April will be definitely a yardstick for Syracuse's defense. I suspect they'll play much better. Uh, I was disappointed in their defense's execution, frankly, on Saturday. Yeah, watching practices on Friday, I thought was really revealing. Virginia, you know, we got to watch them about a half hour. They're in a full field transition drill. And I'm, you know, field side with Paul and Chris. And Christian, I got to tell you, the speed of this Virginia roster and some of the length on defense, 6'7", 6'4", 6'3", and these are players who can move. It is, it is a different world from the game I played. You combine that with some matchup issues, a Peyton Cormier who goes, what, 250 pounds, Griffin Schutz, uh, who had they, they had running midfield. There's all sorts of matchup. Uh, you know, Sean Kerwin, their offensive coordinator, has all sorts of different body types, different skill sets, and they, and they can create matchups. Uh, the one thing that stood out from Syracuse practice, I want to get your opinion on this. Dave Petromala is extremely involved in, in the details of coaching that defense, obviously. But more than that, you know, Gary's a little more subdued. It's a nice combination of a, of, a, of a coach who's more in your face and another coach who's more zen-like. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how that evolves. What, what's your opinion on, on Syracuse going forward this season? I was very, two things that caught my eye, Quint. The first was, you know, for whatever reason, Virginia was shooting at its goal, the goal in front of its sideline for the first and third quarter. Normally that's the second and fourth quarter sideline. Um, 
And when Syracuse realized that Gary Gate and Petromala, Gary, they switched places on their own sideline so that Dave could stand right next to the substitution box, talk to his defense. You know, Gary could stand all the way at the other end talking to his offense. It was very much of a compartmentalized, you know, I don't think Gary was interested at all in the defense. He lived that complete, Dave had complete autonomy on that. The other thing that impressed me was how quickly Dave was making, Petromala was making changes. You know, he had started the game with one defender on Matt Moore. Matt Moore took five shots right off the bat, two went in for goals. And they switched that matchup right away. You know, they brought in a freshman to guard Matt Moore, you know, tearing up your game plan essentially around 11 minutes into the game, which impressed me. The other thing that impressed me, every single time the Syracuse people came off the field, Dave would talk to them. You know, whether it was a good possession or a bad possession, he was in their ear. He was in the short sticks ears. He was in the long stick 48. He was in his ear. Um, it was very hands-on. But And Gary didn't have, was not involved in that at all, you know, which I, I, I thought sort of liked. And the last thing is that, you know, I know Dave Fretchmala had some back issues and a couple of years ago. I think he even missed a Syracuse game, ironically, when he was at Johns Hopkins. And on Saturday, I noticed the pylon in the substitution box, it's almost like an end zone, end zone pylon in football orange, was kicked over by somebody by mistake. And Dave bent down right away, picked it up, put it back. And I thought, well, at least his back is feeling better. I don't know how he feels about his defense right now, but certainly it was nice to see his back was moving and he was moving on the sidelines so much better. Yeah, and it was good to see both David and Gary on Friday and spend time with them. David looks fantastic. Uh, yep. and that, that's a coaching combination that, that uh, I, I enjoy watching. Uh, earlier in the year, uh, Jackson, Jacksonville. Jacksonville's got to be the biggest story in February. What, what they have done to defeat Duke and then to back it up by holding serve against teams like Marquette and Air Force, and then you throw in a win at Denver. Um, you know, I saw potential in their loss at Johns Hopkins. But if you told me that they'd go undefeated the rest of the month, I probably would have said, no, 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 that, that's a little little too much. This team is going to be legit in the SOCON. They'll have to battle Richmond and High Point. Uh, I, I've just been so impressed uh, that they continue with this momentum. What, what did you see from the Dolphins uh, when, when you saw them earlier in the year in person? I saw a team that was pretty hungry. You know, I really liked their defenseman, Hinton, number six, Colin Hinton. You know, he is an anchor down low, and he is someone who can really – we were talking about Cole Kastner earlier and Sostad to a certain extent. You know, he is someone who can really take away a number one threat. You know, he was matched up with D. Simone against Johns Hopkins. D. Simone finished with three goals, but at least one was on a big little pick where they switched and the short stick got him. So it was not Hinton's fault. Um, well, I think one was an extra man too. So I actually thought Hinton really won that matchup. And, and Joey Epstein went 0 for 6 shooting that day. So they had, I think they had a real rock on defense. And the, I like the D3 kid that, um, Thank you. Yeah. 17. Good lefty shooter. Hungry again, wants to prove things. But what I thought about the whole time I was at that game at Homewood freezing, but I was there. And the one thing I thought about, it took me back to a game at Georgetown in 2013 or 2014 against Duke. It was a Georgetown Duke game at Georgetown. And I was talking to the Duke people. I hadn't seen them yet that season. And I said, well, what's going on? What do you got? And they said, well, the biggest thing we have is that our grad assistant volunteer assistant, John Galloway is going to be an amazing head coach one day. I mean, they were saying that years ago. Uh, so they had, you know, eight years ago that they had pegged him for that. I think he had either, he had been at Duke for that time. I think he may have gone to Providence by then, but yeah, um, they were very, very, very high on Galloway and the sort of coaching, uh, how, what kind of head coach he would make even eight years ago. Yeah. One month in the books and certainly John Galloway right now, the, the, the leading candidate for national coach of the year. We'll yep. see if the Dolphins can sustain that success. Well, I want to finish up with what's, what's next for you. What's, what's on the horizon? doing a little bit of high school stuff up here, Q, going to do a story in the feature story in the St. John's high school. Speaking of Colin Hinton, he is an alum, you know, St. John's is becoming very much of a power in the DC area, beat Georgetown prep twice last year. 
Um, so sort of what makes them good, how they've gotten so good. And then the college games, you know, I'm excited to see Navy at some point. I still have not laid eyes on them in person. And those two losses are a little bit surprising. Um, so to see what's going on there in Georgetown, I really think this is a big year for Georgetown. I think they're going to the final four. And if they, I don't think they have the midfield depth necessarily to do a Saturday, Monday turnaround, but with those two defensemen, Bowen and Gibson Smith and the goalie McElroy, they're going to the final four. And if they can manage that Saturday, Monday turnaround, I think they'll be okay. The, the last thing on, on Georgetown, I, I was at their game against Johns Hopkins and Hess, they're, you know, demitting does a little of everything. I haven't seen this in years, played a shift on defense, ran down on offense, stayed on the field on offense. Georgetown scored a goal and he went right to take the faceoff wing, played defense, offense and faceoff wing, bang, bang, bang. So he, you know, I haven't seen that since maybe Matt Abbott at Syracuse, uh, you know, in, in a game that was still contested, it wasn't garbage time. So I re, I think Georgetown is very, very uh, strong. Extremely solid, uh, both facing off with, with Riley and in the goal, obviously with Owen McElroy. I uh, watched highlights last night of their win uh, at South Bend. I thought the offense was, was clicking early. Their shooting was amazing. I want to go back to St. John's real quick before I let you go. Uh, I got to see them last summer. They've become a powerhouse in D.C. Kevin Plank, an alum, and they have put his donation, I think it was $16 million. They've really put that to work in, in building a lacrosse program. They've recruited effectively from the, the uh, Northern Virginia, D.C., uh, and, and, and Maryland area. What, what's, what's, what's the thesis for, for your up, upcoming story? So it'll be a little bit of how they got so good, you know, remember St. John's for a long time really wasn't, wasn't all that no, good at all. They, they, they were, they were an players. afterthought. I mean, right. Yeah, for, it was Landon, and, uh, you know, a Georgetown prep, but maybe a little Gonzaga or DeMatha here and there. Exactly. Uh, but I think we've already mentioned at least two St. John's kids in this podcast because Hinton and then TJ Haley from Georgetown. Uh, yeah. We just mentioned him now, but I mean, he's fantastic. So I think that they've really gotten some athletes in there. They're well coached. West Speaks played at Towson. I think he's another guy a little bit like Galloway who probably was always on that coaching path. And as you know, they've recruited um, very well. They want to win. You know, that's the place where they are having success in a lot of sports right now. It's not just lacrosse. I think it's across the board uh, success. And they're definitely using that momentum. They have a ton of momentum down here in D.C. Well, Christian, thanks. Always good to see you on the road at Virginia. Uh, I love the book. I gobbled Thank it you. up. It was uh, fascinating, really. Uh, historically, made me laugh. It made me think. Uh, we showed Baltimore, uh, barnesandnoble.com, Cornell Press. Uh, if, if, if you Google it, you'll find it. And, and I think fans will really enjoy it. Um, good seeing you, Christian. I appreciate, uh, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Quint, thank you so much for having me. And thank you again for the kind words.